Hey, so I want you to think about like your first job. Chances are when you had your first job, you didn't have a very robust job description. Pretty much you probably had like one thing that you were responsible for, right? So if you ever heard your boss say these words, you have one job that usually wasn't followed by a good work. You know what I mean? Like a reminder of one job is usually a reminder of that one thing that you screwed up. So I want you to see if you can identify with some of these you had one job moments. This is actually in Dawson County. <laughs> so is that like a misspelling of fire, or is it going to say fry? It's like that's where you pick up your fire. I don't know. Let's see. What else? You had one job, gate. Oh, somebody ordered the wrong gate. That, that's like for a playground, <laughs> not a business complex. Thirst. Is it threest or thirst? I'm not sure. Either way, I don't want to win that medal. Maybe they thought it was an acronym. I don't know. I'm not sure what STEPO is, but they didn't teach me that in driver's ed. You had one job. It's handrail. I think that would actually cause some, some harm. You had one job, handrail. Oh, wow. Menalds McDoo. I don't know what to do about that. I've never been to that restaurant. Oh, man. The people who did that sign missed the first day of school. All right, let's see what's our last one here. Oh, what a disappointment. You're looking for bacon and you find Tropicana? Oh, man, I know, I know vitamin C is good, but give me my bacon. And it better not be turkey bacon. It better be the real thing, God's people said. All right. So we've all had that moment where we just blew it. It's like, man, you had one job. <laughs> Even though God has literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. The Bible says that God is everywhere at one time. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he holds the universe in his hand. He knows all the stars in the sky. He knows how many hairs are on your head, or for some of us, how many used to be on your head. God really, though, when it comes to his relationship with us, has one job, and I would say that's holiness. Now, that may not be what you expected me to say. God's one job should be, oh, God is love, God is loving. Well, the way God expresses his love to us is through making us holy. See, when, when Jesus, 2,000 years ago, uh, gave his life for us on the cross to forgive us of our sins, what happens when we receive that gift, when we repent, is he makes us holy. That doesn't mean he makes us churchy and priestly and some new moral code of conduct. No, holiness is the spiritual state that you now exist in if you've named Jesus the Lord of your life. So the way that Jesus shows us that he loves us is he makes us holy. He, he doesn't make us happy. His number one concern is not our happiness. As a matter of fact, God puts our holiness before our happiness because he knows the more we lean into our holiness, the more we lean into becoming more like him, the more fulfilled, the more joyful, the more happy we can live. So when God prioritizes our holiness, the process of becoming more like him, some people would say that's sanctification. That's a big church theology word for you. This process of being made more into the image of Jesus can sometimes hurt a little bit because sometimes God authorizes a season of struggle or pain or, or scarcity to cause us to lean in and trust in Him more. So this sanctification process, yes, the result is it makes us become more like Jesus, but the process is it causes us to trust Him more, to lean on Him more, to, to acknowledge His plans at place in our life. And as we begin to study through the book of Philippians for the month of September, you're going to see this process of sanctification lived out in, in several different ways. And today what we're going to look at is 
what it looks like in those moments of struggle, in those moments of pain, in those seasons of difficulty. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally cool. We'll put it on the screen. I'm going to pray for us before we dive in. God, thank you so much for this church, what's going on, celebrating four years of life change. I pray you would speak to us today. And when we're all done here, we would walk away knowing that we were in your presence. Help us to hear from you. This is your time, Jesus. Speak to us because we'll be listening. In your name we pray. Amen. So before we study this book about the Philippian church, we should know a little bit um, who they were and, and maybe even how they were started. You can actually read this for yourself in a book called Acts of the Apostles. It's kind of the, the first church history account. And in chapter 16, it tells us that Paul and Silas felt called as, as missionaries to go over to this land of Philippi. It's actually the first church to be planted in Europe. So Philippi was a, was a territory that Alexander the Great's father, King Philip, conquered because it has a gold mine, like not a figure, like a literal gold and silver mine outside the town. So there was a big industry there, and then it became a place where they would give land to military officials and soldiers who had finished their commission in the Roman and Greek armies. So Paul and Silas were kind of guided there by God to go start doing ministry and plant a church, and the first person they ran into was a Hellenistic Jewish woman named Lydia. What that means is she was a Jewish woman that doesn't live in the Hebrew land, in Jerusalem, in Israel. She was displaced, and so they were practicing Judaism, the religion of the Jews, and Paul would often go to places throughout Asia, the Mediterranean area, and look for Hellenistic Jews to basically let them know that, hey, the answer to everything you're reading in what we call the Old Testament is Jesus. So he found this woman named Lydia. She was a businesswoman selling purple cloth, which was the luxurious clothing of the upper class. She was very successful. And so when Paul shared the good news of Jesus with her, she trusted, she believed, her whole family was saved and baptized, and she insisted to use her big old house as the location for their first church. So already, Jesus is doing what is not expected. He moved through Paul and Silas to empower a woman to be part of the leadership team. And now back then, not only was it rare to see a businesswoman, but to see a woman in leadership in your church was very countercultural. It would definitely have caught the attention of the community. So as Paul and Silas are going around doing ministry, they run into a woman possessed by an evil spirit. And she is, through that supernatural ability, telling people's fortunes, and her parents are making all kinds of money. Paul says that's not okay, and removes the evil spirit, casts it out in the name of Jesus. Her parents get really upset that they don't have income anymore, and they tell the city officials there in Philippi that Paul is starting a cult. So they take him in the town square, beat them with rods and whips, and throw them in a prison. So, so far, we've got Lydia and her family. We've got a formerly demon-possessed girl, and now Paul and Silas have been beaten for just trying to be like Jesus. They're in a prison, and this is a story where at midnight they start singing hymns. God sends an angel and shakes things up. There's an earthquake in this jail, and their chains are broken. The doors are open. Looks like they can escape free, and the jailer realizes if all these prisoners escape, I'm going to be executed, so he's going to go ahead and fall on his own sword and take his own life. And Paul says, no, don't do it. We haven't left yet. And then Paul, <laughs> to his oppressor, shares the good news of Jesus. This jailer trusts Jesus, brings the good news home to his family. The jailer's family trusts Jesus. Their whole family's baptized. And then, boom, that's the church planting team for the church at Philippi. Slightly different than how we started the church here in Dawson four years ago. So Paul... Ten years later, while he himself is in another jail, Paul just can't stay out of jail, 
here in Dawson County, they tell Brian he's like the person of the year for acting like Jesus. In Philippi and Rome, you get jailed for doing that kind of ministry. But while Paul was in prison, waiting the verdict on his life from Caesar himself in Rome, he writes this letter celebrating about 10 years after the birth of the Philippian church, encouraging them on the good work that God is doing in them, celebrating their generosity, celebrating their unity, and reminding them to stay faithful and stay aligned with who God is and and, and what he's doing. It's a very different voice than many of the other letters written in the New Testament because a lot of the other letters Paul had to address immorality and disunity and disobedience. But this is a thank you letter for fighting the good fight and staying in the faith. This is an exemplary church celebrating good things, kind of like what we're about to do next week as we celebrate four years old here at Dawson campus. Everybody look to your neighbor and say, happy birthday, Dawson. All right, Philippians 1. We're going to start in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God every time that I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Just so you all know, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul actually celebrates the giving and the generosity of this Philippian church because it wasn't just the upper class, the business class that was giving. It was the people in the working class, the blue collar, even the homeless that were sacrificing to send Paul on missionaries. So he's, he's been the recipient of their generosity. And churches have been blessed and maybe even planted because of the, the congregation's help at this Philippian church. And Paul continues, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I don't know about you, if I was locked up in prison, I don't know if those are the words that I would be using, right? We kind of tend to think that when I go on mission trips, when I put money in the offering plate, when I try to listen to the fish more and, you know, secular music a little bit less, God, you're supposed to bless me. God, you've got one job, right? But we think our happiness is God's job, but no, God's job is our holiness. And Paul realizes that while he's in chains, so despite his circumstances, he still celebrates the work that God is doing. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. We're going to hone in on, on verse 6, because I think when we really unpack it, And just dive into just the words that he uses here, the intentionality. Even in the prepositions, we're going to realize that God is saying something to us. That when we don't feel that life is going our way, when our prayers are not only seeming to go unanswered, but we're getting the exact opposite of what we asked for. When our nightmares become our reality, when our family is going through a medical diagnosis that we feared to be true. Seasons of scarcity, it just doesn't seem to be working out and there's more month than there is money. These are the times that we've got to stand on the promises that we have in, in verse 6, that God is doing a good work in you. And he'll be faithful to complete it. This is coming from a man who is in chains, who's been beaten countless times for his faith. Reminding people that no matter what challenge we are facing that God is up to something in the middle of it. See, when he uses this word that God is at work, 
He's actually explaining that, that it's almost like a word picture of what a, a potter does with the clay, molding it and shaping it and bending this lump of clay into something beautiful and something useful. Or what maybe a goldsmith uses, a process to make a wedding ring shiny and bright. It requires a lot of heat to make those impurities rise to the surface. The way a jeweler knows that jewelry is ready is when he can see his reflection. And it can only get to that level of purity through intense heat and intense pressure. See, that's what happens when God is working in us. That's what it means to go through this process of sanctification. See, there's a preposition here that's very intentional. It says God's work in you, not God's work for you. See, God has already done something significant for us. When he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, he gave us salvation. That is God's work for us. And if he never gave us anything else, he's already given us abundantly more than we deserve just by giving us grace and mercy. See, because of God's work for us, which is salvation, we get to experience his work in us, which is sanctification. The process of being set apart from the things of this world and being set apart for the things of God. This is the work of God in us. He's active. He's not just a distant God. You see, the work that he's doing is not just to get you into heaven on the other side of the death. This work that God is doing in us is to make us effective in displaying the truth and the love and the power of God. You see, it's my belief that the way we respond to pain says more about the reality of the gospel than the victories that we experience. Because this is a hopeless world, a lost and broken world. And if they can identify with anything that believers face, is that we aren't okay, we're imperfect, and life still happens to us. Just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean we've got a genie. Sometimes we don't get what we want. Sometimes we get the exact opposite of what we want. And our response to those moments of fear and struggle is sometimes the greatest evidence and the greatest revelation that God is real and he's got us. The perseverance of Jesus' people paints a beautiful picture of the power that comes from trusting in Jesus. That's his work in us. But he doesn't just say that it's work in us. He says it's a good when you think back to that first job you had, and if the boss didn't come to you remind you, you had one job, and he said something like, good job, good work. He's not just saying that it was mission accomplished. No, when you accomplish a task, part of your job description, it benefits the organization for which you work. When you're nailing your to-do list, you're advancing the agenda. It's useful. It's to advantage of your company. I'm a words of affirmation person. Almost to a fault. Like, when my wife says that I'm handsome, it means as much to me as a big old kiss right on the lips. <laughs> I am a words of affirmation person, so to hear good job or good work, to use that word good with anything that's associated with me is very meaningful. This word means accomplishing something, useful, benefiting to someone. So we've got to choose to apply that word good, even to the circumstances that we would label bad. 
because we've only got a today perspective. When God has an eternal perspective, God exists outside of time. So this work, this craftsmanship that he's doing in our life and through us is for the benefit not only of us, but for the benefit of those around us. You see, the early church believers were persecuted pretty much at every turn in every community because they claim that there is one God, one way, one truth, one life. That's Jesus, and that didn't really go well in these, in these pantheons where there were several gods and several religions. And so they were persecuted. But see, when onlookers from the outside would look at these Christian churches and look at the love and the sacrifice and the devotion that they had for one another despite the struggle, despite the persecution, despite even the martyrdom that was taking place, they realized, man, these people love each other than my own mom loves me. How, how can I get that? So this work that God is doing in you, this sanctification process, this set-apart process, this looking different than the rest of the world, this way that we respond to pain, this way that we respond to fear and struggle and all the negative things, that will happen to us. I just want to let you know, you can't name it and claim it and declare things away. God's in control. We're not. And sometimes he's authorizing something difficult to happen to cause us to trust him more, but more importantly to remind us that we're not the star of the play. We are a supporting cast member, and the audience is the lost and broken world looking for the reality and hope of God. So the good work that he is doing is made evident through our response to our I just want to remind you sometimes, whatever you're facing, heartbreak, grief, depression, anxiety, I'm not here to diminish the reality of those things. Jesus himself would weep with people who were weeping. But as Christ followers, we have to remind ourselves in the middle of the bad that God is leveraging it for good. Romans 8, that he uses all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. This is one of the great paradoxes of Christianity. That joy and suffering are almost always partnered when they're mentioned in scripture. As you're going to see as Brian takes us through the book of Philippians this month, joy is mentioned 16 times in this book, more than any other book in the entire Bible. But it's also addressing suffering. The foundations of this church were being beaten and whipped and put in jail. Yet always, joy was the response to suffering. And so what, what I've learned from this story, from the book of Philippians, is that for the believer, both the response and the result of suffering should be joy. Because we know that this is a good work, because we know that it's displaying God's power, I can take joy knowing that nothing is wasted. No heartbreak, no tragedy, no diagnosis, no bankruptcy. No matter what struggle you're facing, our response and the result of that trial is joy. Because joy is a choice. Joy is the perspective we take when we acknowledge that God is up to something. That God hasn't forgotten me, God hasn't abandoned me, and even though I'm not getting what I want, I can trust God to get me through this next step today. I don't know about five days from now, but at least God's got me today. And if some of you are living that reality right now, I think God sent me here just to remind you that he's doing a good work in you. And he'll be faithful to complete it. 
Paul says that he's confident of this. This word confidence in the language that these Philippians would have heard, which was Greek, was very similar, had the same root word to the word they would use for faith. I want you to think about this. Why would he use the same word for his belief in God to save him and get him into heaven? He trusts God with his eternity, and that affects his reality today so much that Paul would walk away from a life of prominence as a Jewish church leader, a Pharisee, for religion that would just let him get imprisoned and beaten and imprisoned and beaten and shipwrecks and sicknesses. See, this obviously was very real to him. He had a deep-seated conviction that it was all worth it. And that same faith that he had in God, he took it and applied it to not only who God is, but what God is doing, even when God isn't doing what we want him to do. So what he's saying here, and what I think he's saying to us, is that with the same level of intensity that I believe that Jesus is real and died on the cross for my sins, and I've placed my faith in him, I've also placed my faith that he's up to something in you. I'm confident that God is using you for a unique and special purpose that is very different than the person that you're sitting next to, the person that you're living with, the people that raise you. God, an everywhere a one-time God, who's carrying the weight of the universe on his shoulders, still has a unique, intimate plan for you. And we should be confident in that. Because God does not start something that he won't finish. Did you know there's not angels in heaven nagging him about a honeydew list? Now, we may have a laundry list of things that we're wanting God to do. But even when God says no to something, it's not because he's procrastinating. He's not about to go on fall break with the schools. We're not going to see God taking a nap. No, even when God says no or wait, it's because he's preparing us for what he has prepared for us. So no matter what you're facing, depression, anxiety, bankruptcy, no matter what, if you're getting neglected or bullied or your marriage or your relationships are falling apart, yes, let your heart break. Yes, be mad about it. The Bible says in Ephesians, be angry but don't sin. It's okay to feel the way that you're feeling. There's this amazing song by a group called Johnny Swim says, if it matters, let it matter. If your heart's breaking, let it break. Catch those pieces when they shatter, let it matter. Things matter. And grief is actually the byproduct of love. Like, it's okay to feel pain. It's okay to even do what they do in the Psalms and cry out to God and say, where are you? Have you forgotten about me? He wants that level of honesty. But what he doesn't want is for us to be guilty of what I think is one of the greatest rebellions of our faith. And that's worrying. I believe that worry and worship can't occupy the same heart of a believer. Yes, allow your heart to break. Know that you're going to have seasons of depression. You're going to be anxious about things. But never lose your confidence. If you can trust God with your eternity, you can trust God with your today. I'm tired of seeing children of God walking around defeated. Let's put our problems in the shadow of the cross and let us realize how small they really are in comparison to a big God who's got big plans for you. Confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. See, God doesn't give up on us. So why should we give up on him? If God uses people to accomplish his purpose, when we take a step back, from God, we're actually taking a step back from ourselves. When we give up on God, it's not so much a commentary of our faith on God, it's just as much a commentary of our faith 
in ourself and what could happen when we say yes to him and we're led by him. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on God. Don't sell your story short just because you're in a season of struggle and you can't see the way out. You've got to remind yourself of scriptures like this that say that God is at work in your life. In Psalms, it says that pain lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. He who began a good work in you, even when life doesn't feel good, when you're unable to get everything you've asked for, when you're just living in a season of of fear, God is still doing a good work. It's okay to have a broken heart. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be frustrated that things aren't working out. But may we not lose our confidence that God is using it for our good, for His glory, to show the people around us that Jesus saves and He's active. He's not just some distant God that people should come on Christmas and Easter to experience. Your struggle could be the catalytic moment for someone else's life change story. They see what God can do in your life, just maybe he could come through for them too. But it's only possible if we maintain that perspective that God is doing a good work. I'm gonna close with a story of a young man named Joseph all the way back in the book of Genesis, thousands of years before the Philippian church was even an idea. Years before Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, claimed Philippi as his own territory. There was a young man named Joseph who had about ten other older brothers. And they were a little bit jealous of him because he got all the preferential treatment from their father, Jacob, who was kind of the patriarch of the Hebrew people. They threw him in a well and sold him into slavery and told Jacob, their father, that he was dead. They were just tired of it because he had a dream a vision that he was going to leave them one day. And they just thought that was too much. So Joseph, in this moment of being sold into slavery, had a choice to make. Is God going to do what he said he's going to do? He told me that I'm going to be a leader. He told me that I'm going to be helping people. He told me that I'm going to be leading people. But this detour is the exact opposite of that. I'm a slave now, God. What's up with He submitted himself, was faithful to the disappointment. (laughs) And guess how he was rewarded? He was wrongfully accused by his owner's wife. So he went from being a slave that at least could perform some kind of duties and do something with his hands to being a prisoner. So God, I'm now a step further away from being a leader. I'm not even a slave. I'm a prisoner now. But he was faithful again and trusting that God was guiding him through the disappointments. Well, his opportunity came one day to stand before the king and help the king work through some difficult dreams he was having. And because he was guided by God, he helped him interpret the dreams. And God moved in Pharaoh's heart, the leader of the biggest empire of the world at that moment, to elevate this ex-slave current prisoner to governor, a number two position. So now he's starting to see his dreams become a reality. While the rest of the world is going through a famine, he had enough vision to realize we need to do something agriculturally to prepare for the famine. So he stocked their storehouses enough to not only take care 
of the Egyptian country. But he didn't realize that his 12 brothers would come seeking refuge and help during the famine. So when they show up to Egypt asking for help and they realize that's our brother Joseph who we sold into slavery. Now he's the second most powerful man in the world. They became fearful that he would get vengeance. They thought this was their day of reckoning. And this is how Joseph responded to them. He said, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. There's that word again. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What this world intends for harm, God intends for good. Don't lose heart in your struggle. God is not absent. He's not taking a break. Even a no from God is preparation for a better yes down the road. He is working, actively working, designing a good thing in your life. If you feel like you're a season where good is not the adjective you would use to describe it, sometimes we've got to preach to ourselves, just like Joseph did. God is God, and I'm not, and I'm going to trust Him. That's my prayer for you today. In a minute, the band is going to get back on stage, and we're going to sing a song that's all about peace and trusting God. And my challenge to you during this time is to let it be sung over you and allow the Spirit just to search your heart and see if you're responding the right way and recognizing that God is at work and He's not done with you yet. Let's pray. I thank you for this church, God. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for four years of life change. Lord, I would ask that if there's anybody in this room in a season of struggle, that they would just be made aware in a fresh way of your work and your purpose and what you're trying to accomplish in their life. And we pray. Amen.